Turn this morning to uh, Exodus chapter 20. Exodus chapter 20. The Ten Commandments are as timely today as they were 33 centuries ago when they were given to Moses. The children of God had gathered at the foot of Mount Sinai. Moses had gone up into the presence of God, and there God gave him the Ten Commandments. There really are two, um, I don't know that I'd call them events, uh, two things that happen in Exodus that are absolutely essential to you and I understanding Old Testament theology. The first thing is the Passover in Exodus chapter 12. And you remember the story, the, the lamb without blemish was to be killed, the blood put over the doorpost, and everywhere the blood of the lamb was put, the death angel would pass over. Along with the 12 words, 10, 12 words that we're going to read in just a minute, those two things uh, actually are the focal point for understanding the theology and especially understanding the Mosaic Covenant. Uh, a new age of God's relationship with man begins with those two things, the Passover and the Ten Commandments. One author has called the Ten Commandments God's blueprint for living. Uh, somebody else said that the Ten Commandments are God's law for a godless world. And regardless of how you describe them, I think everybody here at least would agree that they are extremely important and they are pertinent to our life. The problem is, as simple as they are and as short as they are, most people don't know them. And you obviously can't keep a commandment you don't know. A Gallup poll just a couple of years ago found that 85% of all Americans believe that the Ten Commandments are still binding today. Of that 85%, only 15% could name five of them. Uh, you say, well, that, that makes perfect sense. We live in a very secular society. That's not unrealistic that we would, uh, that there'd be such a low number. Well, let's look at church-going folk. How about that? Newsweek magazine reported that people who go to church, only 49% of all Protestant evangelicals, that would be us, 49%, 44% of Roman Catholics could name four of the Ten Commandments. Now, you're probably sitting there right now trying to name them. Uh, it, it might be interesting. I, I don't have time to go through this, and I won't call on any of you to stand up right now and just say, recite Ten Commandments for me if you would. But it, it's interesting to think, how many of them do you really know? Because you cannot obey something that you don't know. Reminds me of the Sunday school teacher who was teaching uh, middle school boys one time, and she asked her children in class the question, who can anybody here list the Ten Commandments in any order. And one little boy raised his hand. If you ever taught middle schoolers, you'll understand the fear that, and trepidation that probably went through that teacher's mind at that moment. But he raised his hand. He said, I can. 
She said, all right, you can name the 10 commandments in any order. He said, yes, I can. She said, do it. He said, three, one, six, seven, eight, four. <laughs> it is not enough to just know the commandments. You have to live them. You have to teach them to your children. If we're ever going to serve God, I, I don't mind telling you that the older I get, the more my greatest ambition in life is to make sure that my children and my grandchildren love each other and they love God more than they love anything else. I think as the greatest responsibility that you and I face today as parents and grandparents is to do everything in our power to pass on the baton of the gospel to our families. And so we need to teach our children to love God. And we need to teach our children to honor their parents. Let's look then at these 10 words. They are 10 words that set the stage along again with the Passover for Old Testament theology and ultimately all of our theology. Let's stand together in honor and reverence of the reading. God's inspired, infallible, inerrant word. It's Exodus chapter 20, verse one, and we'll read uh, three of those verses. God spoke all these words. And the key here is the emphasis upon who is speaking, okay? God spoke all these words and he said, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. You shall have no other gods before me. Father, help us to understand what that truly means. It's more than just saying God's number one in my life. It's more than that. Help us to understand what this implies in our theology. And more than that, help us to understand how we can uh, teach this to our children, our grandchildren, our families uh, as we live each day. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Before you can ever understand the other nine commandments, you gotta get this one down. Because if you don't get this one down, you can't do anything about the other nine. The other nine don't make any sense. The, this one is foundational. The first commandment is foundational to the other nine, and if you don't get this right, if you don't understand it and you don't fully get it right, uh, you'll never get the others. In this commandment, God, listen, God is not saying, if you want a relationship with me, and this is how we've taught it for so many years, we have taught people that the 10 commandments are God saying to us, if you want a relationship with me, this is what you have to do. And that's not what this is about. That, that's the wrong way to teach the Ten Commandments. In fact, what God is saying here is, if you have a relationship with me, this is what you want to do. Do you see the difference in those two things? It, it, too much of what we do is built upon what, too much of how we live is built upon what we do. 
as if somehow what we do is the thing that's going to uh, make God love us more or make God bless us or any of those kinds of things. And that's not what the Ten Commandments are about. It's not a list of things that you've got to check off and do. This is God saying to you and to me, if you want to have a relationship with me, this is what you're going to want to do. So let's look at it in that context. I want you to see, first of all, the profound declaration that's made in this very first sentence. It's interesting that the Ten Commandments, if in fact they are God's guidelines for living, what do they begin with? God. Begins with God. That's where you always begin. That's where the Bible begins, Genesis 1-1. In the beginning, God. That's a good way to start a world. It's also a good way to start a life. You put God first in your life. So this commandment opens with a profound declaration. He says, I am the Lord your God. Now, there are a couple of things I want you to see about that declaration. And the first one is right here, God reveals his name to us. He reveals his name. In the Old Testament, the name of God was actually a very holy name. It was not pronounced by Jews. In fact, good Jews today still will not pronounce this name. But it was, it was a holy name that was represented by four Hebrew consonants, Y-H-W-H. The Hebrew language is comprised of 32 or 22 consonants, and at this time there were no vowels. So there were no vowels here, and so that's why you've got four letters, Y-H-W-H. And so we really do not know how to pronounce this. Uh, the early Hebrews, because they wouldn't say it, they wouldn't say the name of God. We don't know how, it, we pronounce it, we inserted vowels into it, and so we pronounce it Yahweh, but I don't know if that's really the pronunciation for it. But in any event, God reveals his name to us. And what those four consonants, Y-H-W-H, what those four consonants mean is that God is creator. God is the one who reigns. God is the one who is in charge of everything. That's what it means. The second thing that you see in this is not only does God reveal his name to us, but he reveals his nature to us. This is what God is like. In that name of God, the name that we pronounce Yahweh, creator, God is saying to us, I am the originator of everything. I'm the originator of everything. There are people today who, who say, and they teach uh, today, our children, that they don't believe that there was any kind of intelligent design behind the universe. They say it was an absolute accident. Our children today are taught that there was just some kind of collision of molecules in space, there was a big bang, and then suddenly life began. Can I just say this? It, it, it takes a whole lot more faith to believe that cockamamie story than it does to believe the story that the Bible gives to us. That all of a sudden stuff's just rolling around up there and it bumps into each other and boom, there's life. That's the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard in my life. Makes absolutely no sense at all. It's like saying that the Constitution of the United States was written by a monkey with a typewriter. 
right? It's impossible. Makes no sense. Just think about the universe that you and I live in. It is a vast place. If you could take our sun and reduce it down to the size of a pinhead. So we're gonna take our sun, we're gonna reduce it down to the size of a pinhead, and then we place our solar system around the sun in the same scale as that pinhead, our entire solar system would fit in a 12 by 12 room. That's just our solar system. If you keep that same scale, if you were to go to the next nearest star in our galaxy, all right, so you follow me so far? We've got a 12 by 12 room. In that 12 by 12 room, we've got a sun, our sun, that is the size of a pinhead. Our solar system is contained into scale into that same room. So in that 12 by 12 room, we've got our solar system. If you were to go to the next nearest star in our galaxy, you would have to travel 26 miles down the road. Astronomers tell us that there are literally millions and millions of galaxies. Using that same scale, if you go from our galaxy, which we call the Milky Way, so if you go from our galaxy to the next galaxy, you would have to travel 300,000 miles. I guess that's why we call it outer space, right? God, and here's what God says. I did that. In fact, he says, I did that with my hands. In fact, what he actually says is this. Isaiah says this. You have measured the heavens, and when the Bible talks about the heavens, it's talking about all the galaxies. So millions and millions of galaxies. Here's what Isaiah says. You have measured the heavens in the palm of your hand. In other words, what God says, I created all this with one hand. The other one tied behind my back. I mean, listen, this is the God who says, I am the Lord, your God. I want you to know who I am. I want you to understand what it means when we say that God is the creator of everything. Before he gives us any kind of law, he reveals himself to us. He said, this is my name, this is my nature. But then the next thing I want you to see is we come to my favorite word in the first commandment. The word is your. Y-O-U-R. Because all of a sudden, the God who created the universe, the galaxies, all the stuff that we've never seen nor do we know anything about, he says, I am your God it all of a sudden becomes personal, doesn't it? Now, he says to me, I can have a personal relation, I want to have a personal relationship with you. I am the Lord, your God. God tells me right from the start that I can have a relationship with him. He didn't create the world 
and then set it in motion and step back to see how it was going to play out. That's what some people believe. There are a lot of people who believe he just created the world, he set it in motion, and then he stepped back and said, let's see what happens with this. This verse says to me, no, that's not how I did it. I created everything that there is, and I want to have a relationship with you. I want a personal relationship with you. The greatest discovery, listen, the greatest discovery that you will ever make in your life is when you realize that God wants to have a relationship with you, personally with you. When you come to understand who God really is, you will learn two things. First of all, you will learn that God has been seeking you. God's been seeking you. Sometimes people talk about seeking the Lord. And the Bible does uh, on occasion tell us that we should seek the Lord as Christians. But I want you to know something. Before you ever knew who he was, God was seeking you. You see, he's not the one who was lost. You were. I hear people get up and give, give their testimony and they'll say, I found God. Really? No, you didn't. No, that gives you way too much credit. You didn't find God. God found you. You were the one who was lost. God has been continually seeking you. He is the Lord, your God. Write this verse down, 2 Chronicles chapter 16, verse 9. 2 Chronicles 16, 9, here's what it says. For the eyes of the Lord range throughout the earth to strengthen those whose hearts are fully committed to him. God has been seeking me. He is the Lord, my God. And look at the next thing he says to the nation of Israel. He says, I brought you out of the land of Egypt. I brought you out of the place of slavery. In other words, God says, hey guys, listen. The only reason, the only reason that you are standing here at Mount Sinai the only reason that you're standing here and you are no longer slaves is because I brought you here. If it had not been for me, you wouldn't be here. If it had not been for me, you'd still be in slavery in Egypt. The reason you are where you are right now is because I brought you here. That is not some kind of arbitrary relationship. God's not just trying to populate heaven. The reason God wants to have a relationship with you is because he is trying to change you into the image of his son. Romans 8, 29. We love Romans 8, 28. Everybody, that, oh, my favorite verse, Romans 8, 28. But I like Romans 8, 29. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son. From the time God saved you, he has been at work in your life, conforming you, shaping you, making you into the image of his son. So when you and I enter into a faith relationship with God, he begins to work on us. 
He begins to shape us. He begins to change us. And that's why he brought the children of Israel to this place. He says to them, this is who I am, and I want you to know me. I want you to have a relationship with me. But God never forces you into that relationship. Psalm 53, 1 says, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. Sometimes people tell me that I'm a fool for believing the Bible. Sometimes people say you're a fool because you believe in God, but the Bible says the opposite of that. It's the fool who says in his heart there's no God. That word for fool is a Hebrew word, nabal, N-A-B-A-L. And it doesn't mean intellect. It's not talking about your, your brain power. It's not talking about intellectual emptiness. It's talking about moral emptiness. In other words, it little, it, that word, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God, that word fool literally means like an empty sack. It's the literal translation. When somebody is saying there's no God, it literally means God has said to them, here I am, I wanna have a relationship with you, and yet the person says back to God, no thank you, I don't want anything to do with that. I don't want anything to do with you. So the fool is not saying that God doesn't exist. Fool's not saying God doesn't exist. He's saying, I don't want anything to do with you. I don't wanna have a relationship with you. You see, I don't believe in atheists. Atheists say they don't believe in God. I don't believe in atheists. I don't believe there's any such thing as an atheist. There's not anybody, I, because, and here's why. An atheist says there is no God. And I don't know how you can make a statement like that. In order for you to make a statement like that, to say there is no God, you have to be able to say that you know everything there is to know about everything there is to know. You know anybody? I know some people who think they know that, but they really don't. But you know everything there is to know about everything there is to know. And since I know everything there is to know about everything there is to know, I am making a declaration there is no God. So I, whenever I meet somebody who says I'm an atheist, I say, are you an honest atheist or a dishonest atheist? And normally they'll say, well, I'm an honest atheist. Good. Do you know everything there is to know about everything there is to know? Now be honest. Well, no. All right then, since you don't, is it possible... Is it possible that the part of whatever it is you don't know contains God? Be honest. Well, I guess, yes, that would be a possibility. Wonderful, you are no longer an atheist, you're an agnostic. You, I've just moved you from atheism to agnosticism because an agnostic says there may be a God, I just don't know him. I just don't know that. I just don't know about that. I'm getting ready to introduce you to him. See, you've been walking around all this time saying, I don't know that there is, I don't know whether there's a God or there's not a God. Oh, well, I do know there is a God, and so let me introduce you to him. You see? So when you begin to look at this, this idea of saying the fool says, it's not that the fool says there is no God. Nobody can make that kind of statement. You're not smart enough to make that kind of statement. I'm not smart enough. 
So it's not that the fool says there is no God. The fool is really saying, I, there may be a God, and they may say there is a God, but what he's saying is, I don't want anything to do with him. I don't wanna, I don't wanna have a relationship with him. I don't wanna know him. So there's this personal discovery that takes place in the first commandment. I am the Lord, your God. Here's who I am. This is my name, this is my nature. I'm your God. I wanna have a relationship with you. I wanna have a personal relationship with you. Here's the third thing. What he demands then after that is my undivided allegiance. Look at what he finishes up with. When you understand who God is, and when you understand that he is seeking a personal relationship with you, now look at what the commandment is. Do not have other gods besides me. I am the Lord your God. I'm the one who brought you out of the land of Egypt. The only reason you are standing where you're standing right now is because I did it. And I'm your God. I want to have a relationship with you. And then he says, you shall have no other gods before me. Now that begins to make some sense, doesn't it? You see, the greatest challenge in your life and my life is to keep God first. That's the greatest challenge that you and I have, to keep God first. The hardest thing, the hardest thing about being a pastor is not preaching, it's not administration, it's not counseling, it's not ministry. The greatest challenge that I have as a pastor is to maintain a close personal relationship with God through Jesus Christ. It is the, the hardest thing that I have to deal with in my life because of all the other things that happen in my life. The hardest thing I have to deal with, and I would say the same for you, is making sure that God is first in my life. And that's always going to be job number one for the Christian. Make sure nothing Make sure nothing comes before God in your priorities. Make sure nothing comes before God in your plans. Make sure nothing comes before God in your practice. God has basically said to me, Keith, I wanna have a relationship with you and I want you to have a relationship with me. But listen, if this thing's gonna work, if this relationship is gonna work, we're gonna to have to establish some ground rules. And the first ground rule is this. I'm your God. I am not one God among many. I am your God, and I am the God of the universe, and I wanna be your God. I wanna be your God. And th listen, that is, so that is so politically incorrect because it goes, against the, it goes against the spirit of the culture in which we live. We live in a world where everybody is right and only people who are wrong are those who insist that they're right. Let me, let me illustrate what I mean. Some time ago, Jim Carrey, you may be a Jim Carrey fan, I'm not. Um, some things he does is funny. Most of it's not to me, but you may be. Jim Carrey did an interview on 60 Minutes some years ago. He invited the cameras into what he called the center of his universe. 
And this is the place where he says that he goes to escape the world. So they go in there. And while he was there, he talked about his feelings about God. And here's what he said, quote, this is where I hang out with Buddha, Krishna, all those guys. I'm a Buddhist, I'm a Muslim, I'm a Christian. I am whatever you want me to be. It all comes down to the same thing. They are all the same God. And it is this conviction and spirituality, listen, that makes me happy. Now, a lot of things he does may be funny, but that ain't funny. That's not funny at all. There are some things that are meant to be shared. There are some things that cannot be shared. You can't share a unicycle. Sexual love between a husband and a wife is not meant to be shared. And there is one thing that God says he will not share. Isaiah chapter 42, verse 8, I am the Lord, this is my name. I will not give my glory to another or praise to idols. In the first commandment, God is saying, you are not to have any other gods in my presence. That's what that means. You are not, so it says, it's, it's unfortunate in English because it says, you shall not have any other gods beside me. That, in English, that um, uh, implies that there may be other gods out there, but that's not really what this commandment says. It doesn't say I'm one among many. It says I'm the only one. I'm the only God. God demands exclusivity in our relationship. It does not mean that God is just number one on your list of things that you like. I've got top 10 things that I do and I like in my life and in my family, and we do this and we do that. God's number one on that list. No, that's not what this means. You don't understand this. Think about it this way. Suppose I go to Edna and I say to her, now she and I have been married for uh, almost 39 years, and suppose I go to her and say, Edna, I want you to know you're my number one wife. You really are. And number two is, I doubt I'd get past that. And I shouldn't get any farther than that. If I even get that far. That's not a very good thing to do, is it? Go to your wife and say, you're my number one wife. But number two wife is, hmm, that's not gonna work. God says, the only way that you're ever going to know me is through my son. That's it. Jesus says it in John chapter 14, verse six. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father except by me. So it's not, listen, evangelicals get blamed a whole lot for saying, well, you are so exclusive. The only reason I'm exclusive is because the Bible is exclusive. Jesus was exclusive. Jesus said, I am the only one. I'm not one of many ways to get to God. I'm the only way to get to God. There's only one God. If I'm willing to have no other gods, then I can have God. I can have Yahweh. I can know him personally. And that is one of the most astounding concepts 
ever to grip the human heart. Think about it. The great God of creation condescends to reveal himself to you and me. The oldest piece of literature that we have in existence is the book of Job. It's not just the oldest book of the Bible. It is the oldest literature that we have historically. And in the book of Job, in chapter 11, here's the question Job asks. Can you fathom the depths of God or can you discover the limits of the Almighty? The answer for Job and the answer for every generation since Job has been, no, you can't. No, you can't. Matthew chapter 11, verse 25, Jesus said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things from the wise and learned and revealed them to infants. You, you cannot know God by your own intellect. You cannot know God by your own personal reasoning. If you want to know God, you have to know God according to his rules. You have to know God according to the way he reveals himself. But you can know him, and you can know him personally. He will reveal himself. God says, I am the Lord your God. He's saying, I can be real to you. I can be personally real to you. We aren't just saying he is the God. That is a correct statement, by the way. But that's not what he wants you to say. He wants you to say, he is my God. If you read Psalm 23, everybody wants Psalm 23 read at the funeral. It is a very comforting passage of scripture. When you, the psalmist opens up that passage of scripture, the very first line says what? The Lord is my shepherd. He could have said, the Lord is a shepherd. That's a factual statement. That's a correct statement. He didn't say that. He could have said, the Lord is the shepherd. Well, that's a factual statement. All you have to do is go into the New Testament. And Jesus says, I am the shepherd. It's a factual statement. But that's not what he said. He said, the Lord is my shepherd. Why did he say that? He said that because God had revealed himself personally to David. And David had surrendered his life, all of his life, every inch, every square inch of his life, David had surrendered to God. And when he did that, a relationship was formed in which David was now able to say, the Lord, Yahweh, the creator, the ruler, the one who made all this with one hand, he's my shepherd. And that's what he desires for your life and for mine. He's not interested in being just on your list. He's not interested in just being one of many things that you are engaged and involved in, he says, I 
am the Lord. I made it all. I created it all. I can destroy it all. I'm the Lord, your God. You will have no other God, not just beside me. That word literally means in front of, beside, in back of, on top of, underneath. He says, you will have no other God anywhere close by you because I'm the Lord, your God. Do you know that? Do you know that he is your God today? Romans 10, 8. Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. One of the most beautiful verses in all the Bible. If you'll call on him, you can know him. And when you know him, all those other nine commandments they'll become a whole lot easier because now it's not that I have to please God. I want to please God.